I'm very thankful for the opportunity that I have to bring you the Word of God today. I'm very thankful for the opportunity that I have had to teach this weekend. For those of you that came to the parenting seminar yesterday, thank you very much for being there, for your attentiveness, and then the joyful time that we enjoyed in the Sunday school hour and now the opportunity to preach and to serve your congregation. This is a great delight for me to be with you. As was stated earlier, I am from North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens, New York City, and I bring you greetings from uh, that church today. It is my honor and privilege to bring you the Word of God. It is my topic this morning to speak to you on the subject of restoration. Let me illustrate this. Several years ago, I was getting a haircut. As I was getting the haircut, I explained to my barber, listen, please, as you're doing whatever you're doing, leave me a little something on top. I'm not a quitter. I want to, I want to move it around to uh, give the illusion that I actually have some hair. And so as he's listening to my instructions and he begins cutting my hair, um, his native tongue is not English. I'm sure he understood what I said but he had a friend that walked into the barbershop as he was cutting my hair. So I kid you not, I am in the chair. The mirror is in front of me. I'm seeing what is happening. As he is cutting my hair, his friend sat behind him. And so he is cutting my hair, but he is having a conversation with his friend, not actually looking at my head as he is cutting the hair. When he was finished and I saw the whole thing uh, develop and degenerate in front of me, I'm looking at the mirror and I'm saying, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. What I needed at that point was restoration. I needed my hair to go back to the way that it used to be, the way that it should be. Well, we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world where... Entropy has an undefeated record, and fairy tale endings are usually reserved for fairy tales. Uh, you can make a good living in this world if you can replace a hip or a roof or a fender and make it look like new. Why? Because we live in a fallen world where things break and things fall apart. And I'm not just talking today about our haircuts, but I'm talking about our relationships. I'm talking about our emotions. I'm talking about our finances. And the place where we need restoration the most is oftentimes the place where we feel it the least, and that is in our relationship with God. So we live in this fallen world where things fall apart and we need restoration. I would like to illustrate that today from an Old Testament story in 2 Kings. And so I would ask, please, that you take your copy of the Scriptures and that you turn to 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. But before we do, allow me, please, to pray for you and to pray for myself. Father in heaven, we take your word very seriously. Uh, you have told us through your Son that your word is truth. Lord, we want to confess that before we read it, before we proclaim it and explain it, Lord, that we believe that and we start with that preface that what we are reading is truth. 
And now, Lord, as truth is going to be presented to your people, I pray that that would be accompanied by the power of your Holy Spirit, that there would be an understanding of the truth today. I pray, dear God, that there would be an attentiveness on the part of the people where they would be interested to know what you have to say. Lord, I do pray for myself as I stand up here. God, please do not allow me to stand up here and to read words off of a page, but I pray that I would be filled with your Holy Spirit. I pray that I would be filled with joy and compassion for the people that I'm speaking to. I pray, Lord, that you would be the divine editor. Lord, that I would say the things that you want me to say. And most of all, Lord, I pray that you would enable me God, to present your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he may receive the glory. So, this preaching now, Lord, is in your hands. Do with it, Lord, please, what you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second Kings chapter 8. We begin reading at verse 1. And the first two words say, Now Elisha. Who was Elisha? Elisha was the one that came after Elijah. Elisha was the most prolific miracle worker in the Bible apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Elisha had said to the woman, who is this woman? We'll get to her in just a moment, but you need to be asking the question, who is this woman? Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, arise and depart with your household and sojourn or temporarily travel wherever you can. Why? For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God, Elisha. She went with her household and sojourned or temporarily traveled in the land of the Philistines for seven years. Who is this woman to whom he is speaking? She's commonly referred to as the Shunammite woman. Uh, we meet her back in 2 Kings chapter 4. At the time, she knew that Elisha, the man of God, would travel through that region. And as he would come through her town, the town of Shunam, he would need a place to stay. So in an act of benevolence and hospitality, she and her husband built a room on the top of their house so that when Elisha would pass by, he would have a place to stay. And Elisha was very grateful to this woman for doing this. And he went to her. And he said, is there anything that I can do for you? You have been so kind to me. The woman said, I have everything that I need. I dwell among my people. I don't need anything. But Elisha's servant, Gehazi, said, I know what this woman needs. This woman is getting a little bit older, and her husband is already old, and what they would really like to have is a child. And so Elisha said to the woman, a year from now you're going to have a child. Fade in, fade out. A year later, she has a little boy. This little boy starts to grow up, and one day he's out in the field with his father working. He begins to complain of a headache. He goes in the house. He gets up on his mother's lap, and there in her arms, the little child dies. She takes the child. She carries them up the steps into Elisha's bedroom and lays him across Elisha's bed. She then makes a 16-mile journey from her town to the place where Elisha is in Mount Carmel. And she tells Elisha of what has happened. 
And Elisha, who is probably a little bit older at the time, uh, wants to uh, address the situation. And so he says to his servant Gehazi, here is my staff. I want you to take it. Do not stop. Get back to Shunem as fast as you can. Lay the staff across the boy's chest. I will get there as soon as I can get there. And Elisha and the woman made their way from Mount Carmel back to Shunem. Elisha goes into the upper room and in what is arguably the most unusual prayer meeting in all the Bible, Elisha raises the boy to life and he is presented to his mother. That is the woman that is being referred to here. And what happens is several years later, Elisha knows from the Lord that there's going to be a famine. Now, put this into perspective. Back in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a famine which lasted three and a half years, and in that famine, people were dropping dead. This was going to be a famine which was going to last for seven years, and so in an act of kindness, Elisha says to the woman, doesn't really matter where you go. You can go to a place that's awful, but you have to leave here because it's not going to rain for the next seven years. The reason that it didn't rain was because of the covenant unfaithfulness of the people of God. God promised in the law of Moses that if the people kept the covenant, one of the covenant blessings would be that it would rain and that they would have plenty to eat. But if they rebelled against the Lord, there would be famines. And so a famine has come upon the people of God. Elisha has forewarning of this. He forewarns the woman and she departs for seven years and of all places she goes into the land of the Philistines. Fade in, fade out. The famine comes to an end and we pick up the reading in verse 3 where it says at the end of seven years when the woman returned to the land, the famine is over, returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Apparently, while she was gone, her home and her land had been confiscated. It appears as though this was done by the government. Nothing ever changes. And so she goes to the king and says, I want my property back. I want my house back. Now, we get to verse 4, and as we get to verse 4, I can read it for you. I can explain the English words as it, what, it, what it means, but it is one of the most perplexing verses in all the Bible in that I cannot tell you why verse 4 is in the Bible. It is one of the most strange, unusual, inexplicable verses in all of Scripture. Uh, look at it, please. 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 4. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. The king at this point is King Jehoram. He is a wicked king. He is the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel. The apple does not fall far from the tree. This is a wicked king. He is an idolater. He is a God-hater. And he is having a conversation with Gehazi, the one who had been the servant of the man of God, Elisha. The reason that Gehazi is no longer the servant of Elisha is at this point Gehazi is a leper. And the reason that he is a leper is because he has tried to extort money from a Syrian general by the name of Naaman. So you have this God-hating king having a conversation with a defrocked clergyman and what are they talking about? 
This is bizarre. This is, this is wacky. This is inexplicable. But notice the conversation. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. Why in the world this wicked king would want to go to his former servant and ask about the great things that Elisha has done is perplexing. It's perplexing for several reasons. First of all, because this king himself on multiple occasions was an eyewitness to some of the things that Elisha had done. Secondly, on multiple occasions, this king tried to kill Elisha. Third, why in the world would you be going to this man who has now no reputation, no credibility. He is one who has extorted a Syrian general and he is a leper. But the king just wakes up one day and says, you know what? I would like to have recounted to me all of the miraculous things that God has done through Elisha. That is a bizarre, bizarre verse, but it is in the scriptures and it is true. Now, notice what happens in verse 5. And while, W-H-I-L-E, if you grasp that word while, then you will be able to understand the rest of the sermon and it will all make sense. If you don't get that word, then what I'm about to say will make no sense at all. The entire passage hinges on this word while. And while he, that is Gehazi, was telling the king, that is Jehoram, how... Elisha had restored the dead to life. That's speaking of the son of the Shunammite woman that I told you about previously. And while at the same time he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, and anytime you see the word behold in scripture, it means paint a picture in your mind's eye. Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. In other words, at the exact same moment that Gehazi was talking about the woman, the woman and her son walked into the room. And the king said, My lord, O king, here is the woman and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Do you understand what has happened in this setting? The king wakes up one day and he wants to know all of the great miracles of Elisha. And so he summons, of all people, Gehazi. And he says, Gehazi, can you just give me a rundown of what Elisha has done? And Gehazi says, I don't know, king. I mean, this, this guy did, I mean, he had, a, he had a double blessing beyond Elijah. I mean, I, I, I mean we're going to be here all day if you want to know everything that he's done. I mean, it all started when he and Elijah were on the other side of the Jordan River. And, and, and king, you'll rem remember at that point, th there was a chariot that came down and picked up Elijah and swing low, sweet chariot coming for to carry me home. And, and, and Elijah dropped his mantle. When he did, Elisha caught it. And when he got the mantle, he walked over to the Jordan River and he used it to cross over the Jordan River on dry ground. And he gets to the other side and he is in Jericho. And he's, when, when he's there, the water is bitter and he puts some salt in the water and the water becomes sweet. And from there he moves on to Bethel. And when he's at Bethel, some kids start to mock him because he is bald and lo and behold a couple of bear come out of the woods and maul the 42 kids to, 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 to death and then there was another time king I'm telling you I was there I saw it with my own eyes there was someone who had borrowed 
an axe and he's over by the, by, the, by the Jordan River and he's chopping down this tree and wow, the axe handle flies off and it falls down into the water and it floats to the bottom. Here comes Elisha. He waves a branch over the water and the axe head resurrects or comes up to the surface. There was another king, there was another time king and you know that you were there when we went on that military expedition and we were, we were, we were stuck out in the desert and, 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 and we were going to die of thirst and along comes Elisha and water is produced not through a river and not through rain but there's just water there and our, our, our thirst is quenched and there was a, an optical illusion that was caused by it and our enemies thought that it was blood and they came out and we defeated them. King, you know that because you were there. Uh, there was another time when there was this guy named Naaman and he was a leper and, and, and he was cleansed, which is the reason why I'm a leper today because I tried to steal money from him, but this man was actually cleansed. King, I'm telling you, there are so many miracles that this guy has done that, that, that we don't have time to cover all of them, but by far the miracle which he performed, which, was, which, which had greater magnitude than any of the other miracles that he performed, is there was this boy, and I'm telling you, King, this boy was not sick, he was not injured, he was not wounded, he was dead. He was cold, he was purple, he was dead. He was laying on a bed, stiff as could be, and, and, and Elisha comes into the room, and he lays on top of the boy, and, 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 and the boy sits up, and he starts to sneeze, and all of a sudden, you know, this boy is alive, and this boy is brought to life. King, I'm telling you, it was the most magnificent miracle I have ever That's him. That, that's the boy. And there's his mother. King, I, 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 you, the, the story that I'm telling you right now, it is about that lady that just walked in the door. There they are. The king maybe is a little bit skeptical at this point. And so he questions them to see if this is true. Look in, in, in verse 6. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, so here's the response of the wicked king. So the king appointed an official for her saying, restore, uh, that's our word for the day, restoration, restore all that was hers together with the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, the king says she gets her house back, she gets her property back, and anything that would have grown on that land while she was gone, I want that restored to her as well. She gets full restoration. Now, this is a, an unusual story. It is an illustration of the doctrine of restoration. What are we to do with this information? Well, I would like to make three points as I observe what has happened in this text. And first of all, number one, it is that the glorious doctrine of restoration is always controlled by the design of providence. The glorious doctrine of restoration is always controlled by the design of providence. What is providence? Providence is God having absolute control over all things. 
It is God orchestrating the movement of the largest planet and the movement of the smallest molecule and everything else in between. It means that God is sovereign and that he rules over all, that he has a lock, L-O-C-K, on all things. He limits, orders, controls, and knows everything. The Westminster Confession says that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. The abstract of principles from the Southern Baptist Seminary, Article 4, says that God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. Providence brings about restoration. And since there is a God, and this God is a God of providence, and he is sovereign, that means, therefore, that there is no such thing as luck. For if luck exists, then the God of the Bible does not. Nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, is random. You will hear young people talking about an event, something that someone will say, something that someone will do, and they will say, that was so random. No, it wasn't random. It was by the design of a sovereign hand of God. Nothing is left to chance. Everything is preordained. Everything is by design. It's fashionable for people in the church over the past quarter century to look at something which happens in their life which is really good, and they will say, that was such a God thing. Now, I don't want to argue with that because I believe that that thing, whatever it may be in their life, was a God thing. But my question would be, can you point me to something in history which was not a God thing? Anything that happens, by definition, is a God thing. He is in control. Providence is a friend to restoration. Let's just think of this mathematically. What are the mathematical chances that after seven years, that is 2,550 days roughly, that on the exact day, at the exact hour, at the exact moment when Gehazi was telling the story of the Shunammite woman and her son, that at that moment, after having been gone for seven years, she would walk into the king's presence at that exact time. It was not choreographed. It was not planned. God was the one directing traffic. But how does the conversation between the king and Gehazi take place randomly and then the woman walk into the room at the exact same time that she is being talked about? What are the chances of that happening? A hundred to one? A million to one? A billion to one? So you're telling me there's a chance. No, the, there are no mathematical odds to this. It is insurmountable. However, if God is the one that is directing traffic, then the chances of that happening are 100%, and they are 0% if he is not. Well, in this particular case, God is the one that was directing traffic, and it was instrumental in her restoration, the doctrine of providence. And what that means for you is that you are where you are right now, not just literally in this room, but where you are generally speaking in life, because this is where God has directed you and this is where God has put you. 
It is not random in any way. Every encounter that you have with anybody else, it is because God has caused there to be a confluence of your interaction with one another. Everything that has happened in your life up to this point has been because God in providence has been directing traffic. Let me give you an illustration how providence was used in the restoration of a friend of mine. I had a friend that I had been witnessing to and trying to give the gospel to for many years. I was only ever able to get him to go to church one time. Uh, This particular man had much going against him when it came to being a Christian. First of all, he was born into a Jewish home. Uh, Secondly, he was from uh, an atheist background, so he was a Jewish atheist. Next, he was a heroin addict, and on and off, he was homeless. Uh, He lived in another town, and I would see him from time to time. I would try to give the gospel to him. I would try to invite him to church. And there was a period where we lost touch with one another, and it was really unusual for him not to pick up his phone. A few months later, he calls me back, and he says, you're not going to believe what has happened to me. I was homeless. I was out walking one day. I got hit by a car. I was taken to the hospital, and there I had two problems. Number one, my leg was severely messed up by being hit by a car. Secondly, I had to be dried out because I was high on heroin at the time. I said, wow, that's, that's pretty rough. I said, where are you now? He said, well, I'm in a rehab center. Now, this rehab center, this is in another state. This was in New Jersey. I live in New York. This is in New Jersey. The rehab center was 40 miles away from the hospital. And he told me the town where the rehab center was. And as Providence would have it, I knew several Christians in the town where the rehab center was. And so I formed a little group text, and I started to text about 10 people all at once. And I said, brothers and sisters, here's a great evangelism opportunity. I have a friend of mine, and I told his story, and I told where he was in this rehab center. And one of the women who was was, uh, on that text feed texted back and said, I think I know who this man is. My daughter is a nurse and she has been taking care of a man that fits this description. Now, the daughter at the time was not a Christian, but she was a very kind woman. And she knew that when this man was leaving the hospital, he didn't have any clothes because the clothes that he was wearing when he came in from the street had to be thrown away. So she went to one of her parents' friends who was roughly the same size and said, Can you give me something that I can give this man so that when he leaves the hospital, he will have something to wear? The woman says, I think I know who this man is. My daughter has been taking care of him for the past two months. A few seconds later, a man in this text feed jumps in and says, Your daughter asked me for some clothes. Is this the same guy? Yes, it's the same guy. And he texts and he says, I'm on my way to the rehab center right now. I don't know this man. I don't know what he looks like. I'll just look for the guy that's wearing my clothes. 
These 10 friends of mine start to befriend this man. They are kind to him. They love him. And they start to share the gospel with him. One woman in particular was very tenacious in her approach to this man and just told him about his need to be born again to the point where my friend called me and said, I appreciate your friends. I appreciate the visits. This one woman, you have to call her off because she, is, she just wants to talk to me about Jesus. Fade in, fade out, a few weeks later, he calls me and he said, you know what? I think that I have just become a Christian. I said, what? He goes, yeah. He said, I've been thinking to myself, what are the mathematical odds that a young lady that you know was my nurse? And what are the odds that a man that you know actually gave me clothes? And what are the odds that I would be in a rehab center which would be in the same town as your friends? He said, I come from a science background. The, the, the odds of that happening are insurmountable. I think that there's a God. And since there's a God, I think that this God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And this guy became saved and born again and went on to love the Lord and to live for the Lord. And as he tells his testimony, his testimony is that which caught his attention was the doctrine of providence the chances of all of this coming together. I say that to you to encourage you in this way. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I can tell you with certainty that everything that is happening in your life is for a purpose. It is not random, and God will ultimately use that to bring glory to himself and will bring help to you. Which brings me to my second observation, and that is that our glorious message of restoration is communicated most effectively in the context of pain. What was the greatest pain that the Shunammite woman ever experienced? Well, that's an easy one. And that is that her son died. In fact, I don't even want to meditate on this very long because it's, it's just such a gruesome thought that a parent would have a child that would die. It's, 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 it's the most horrific thing that can happen on planet Earth. Can you imagine how that woman felt as she made the journey up the stairs carrying her dead son and then the journey 16 miles on her way to Mount Carmel and then the 16 miles from Mount Carmel with Elisha back to Shunem? What this woman was feeling, the pain that this woman was experiencing, but I will argue that unless this woman went through this pain, in other words, unless there was a death, there would not have been a resurrection. And had there not been a resurrection, then what? Then the king would have paid no attention to her. But this woman walks in and she asks for her house. She asks for her land. The king says, who are you? She said, I used to live here. The king says, listen, woman, for the last seven years, we've had a famine. Things are tough all over. Get in line. We're, we're just now getting back on our feet. That which caused the king to pay attention to her was the fact that there was a son who had been dead but was now alive. 
If he had not died, he could not have come back to life. And I don't think that this woman, in fact, I know that this woman, when she went through those several hours or that day of having a dead son, knew that one day that that was going to be used in order to bring about restoration. And in the same way, I do not know what pain you are going through right now. I don't know whether it is financial or relational. I don't know whether it is emotional. I'm not sure of the pain. Maybe it's physical. I don't know the pain that you're going through right now. But I want to give you comfort today and say that that pain is not wasted. It is not random. It is by design and God often uses the pain that we experience to bring about glory to himself and good for us and restoration for us. Let's consider, let's consider the life of Joseph. If Joseph is not the favorite, then he doesn't get the coat of many colors. If he doesn't get the coat of many colors, he's not hated by his brothers. If he's not hated by his brothers, he's not sold into slavery. If he's not sold into slavery, he doesn't go to Egypt. If he doesn't go to Egypt, he doesn't meet Potiphar. If he doesn't meet Potiphar, he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. If he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, he, doesn't, he isn't accused of rape. If he isn't accused of rape, he doesn't go to jail. If he doesn't go to jail, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, then he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream. If he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream, then the cupbearer doesn't know that he can interpret dreams. And when Pharaoh has his dream concerning the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, the cupbearer isn't going to know where to go for help. And if he doesn't interpret the dream of Pharaoh, what the Egyptians are going to do is during the years of plenty, they're going to eat and squander everything that is in front of them. And if they do, there's going to be no supply. There's going to be no food for that portion of the world. And if there's no food for that portion of the world, his family is going to die. And if his family dies, then his brother Judah is going to die. And if his brother Judah dies, there's going to be no King David. And if there's no King David, there's no King David's greater son. And if there is no King David's greater son, Jesus Christ, you're going to hell and so am I. You see, God in every instance used pain to bring about his purposes. And so when Joseph's brothers come to him at the end of his life and they try to apologize to him, his response to them is, you meant it for evil. You are really bad guys. You hurt me badly. However, there is an overarching truth which surpasses your attempt to bring pain into my life, but God meant it for good as it is this day to save many people alive. And at the time, Joseph didn't even know the amount of good that would come from that in that ultimately from that there would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you can put your blinders on and you can look at any isolated segment of the life of Joseph and you can come to the conclusion there is reason for him to be discouraged. There is reason for him to be distraught. Here I am trying to honor the Lord, I am in jail for a crime that I did not commit. And I have been forgotten for two years by the cupbearer. If you just put blinders on that, there really is no meaning. There really is no restoration associated with that. 
But when you get in your Romans 828 helicopter and you begin to lift off and you see the panorama of everything that God is doing, that all of those ingredients were essential in ultimately bringing about the restoration not only of Joseph's family, but the restoration and salvation of all humanity, then you see, aha, God knows what he is doing. That son who was dead for several hours was painful. I am not going to say that it was not painful to that woman. I'm not going to say that when something bad happens to you that you should not hurt because pain by definition does hurt. It is a normal thing for people to hurt. That is not wrong. But when you say this is random, this is meaningless, it's not going to bring about anything good, you're not seeing the sovereignty of God in a panoramic view that God has an ingredient in there in your life which is known as pain which ultimately will be used for your good. Please consider the greatest pain that the world has ever known. and That is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for six hours hung upon a cross and his visage was marred more than any man meaning that when they got done beating him he did not even look like a human being they had taken the crown of thorns and they had grounded into his skull they had taken a stick as a mock reed and they smashed the crown of thorns into his skull they nailed his hands and they nailed his feet they lifted him up there they mocked him and they scorned him He was thirsty upon that cross. He bore in his body our sins upon the tree. But it was not just the physical agony that Jesus endured, but it was the pollution of sin that was placed upon him. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Christ has also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. And the Bible says in Isaiah 53 that it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him and to make his soul an offering for sin. Never has there ever been more pain than what the Lord Jesus endured upon that cross. Bearing our sin and then bearing the full wrath of God, it is as if God rolled up his sleeve and for six hours hammered his son to death upon the cross to the point where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason God forsook Jesus is because of my sin and your sin. It was all placed upon him in pain which is so indescribable we cannot even begin to scratch the surface. But yet it is because of that pain that I never will experience pain in eternity for Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. It is through the pain of the Son of God that my sins are washed away and God the just is satisfied to look at him and to pardon me. So I don't know the pain that you're going through right now and I am certainly not downplaying it and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be hurting as a result of your pain. All I am saying is it is not random. It is there by an act of divine providence and that pain will ultimately be used as a main ingredient in bringing about the purposes of God and restoration. Are, are you with me so far? Are we, are we, are we together on this? All right. Let, let me go on now to the final point, and that is that the glorious doctrine of restoration is brought about not only by 
providence and by pain, but the glorious message of restoration is accompanied with a demonstration of divine power, specifically the power of a risen son. As I said earlier, the main reason why the king was willing to restore her property was because her previously dead son was now alive. Remember the conversation. What the king happens to be interested in that day, for whatever reason, is the miraculous. And there is no greater miraculous than someone being dead and coming back to life. And it was that act, the act of restoration of life, which caused the king to give her the restoration of her property. Please follow the argument from the lesser to the greater objectively. And then I want to close with making it a subjective demonstration of the power of God. Here's what we have objectively. If a wicked king, hearing the testimony of a leprous, defrocked clergyman, was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he did not know based upon a boy who was dead but was now alive, standing at her side, a boy who would eventually die, how much more will a loving, good, intentional God not grant ultimate restoration to his elect when he sees his perfect eternal son standing by our side, proof of our justification, a son who was dead, but a son who will be alive forevermore. In other words, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Jehoram was not looking at the merits of the woman when he restored her property. Ma'am, who are you? I am the Shunammite woman. I do good for people, and I should have good done to me. I have, I have erected a room on the roof of my house. I am benevolent. I am hospitable. Therefore, give me back my property. That would not have moved the hand of this wicked king. The only thing that moved the hand of this wicked king was that her previously dead son was standing beside her at that very moment. There's something different about this woman, and that brought about her restoration. And in the same way, one day you will stand in the judgment before an all-knowing God and the determination at that moment as to whether or not you will be damned eternally or whether you will be in heaven eternally is based 100% upon whether or not you have a risen son standing at your side, one who speaks up for you when God will look at him and pardon you. It is the power of the gospel objectively. But in closing, I want to speak to you about the power of God subjectively. In other words, in our experience to bring about restoration. Think about it in your own life. You are living your life. You are going 
in whatever direction you are going. To varying degrees you are religious, to varying degrees you are sinful, but there is something which we universally all experience and that is sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and there is no difference. We are all sinners, we are all dead. And what ends up happening is in varying ways, God through providence brings the message of the gospel into our lives, whether it is through our family or our church or a coworker or a gospel tract that you pick up on the street or through you just reading a Bible in a hotel room, whatever, there are varying means through which the message comes to you. And that message, here we go, boom, is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power to restore. It is resurrection power where all of a sudden we who used to be disinterested or, dis, di, or, or, or indifferent or antagonistic toward the gospel or just dead in our trespasses and sins, all of a sudden we are what? brought to life and all of a sudden the Jesus that really meant nothing to us or the Jesus that bored us now is glorious to us and the sin which we used to love mysteriously now we hate it and the church with all of its weird people and we are the weirdest people on the planet who seemed weird to us now are our brothers and our sisters and we love them more than we love anyone else. What has happened? There has been a resurrection. There has been restoration through the power of the gospel subjectively in our hearts whereby he has placed within us life. We were dead. He has brought us to life. And so I ask you today, as you are making your way through this life, are you aware that every step you take is by the design of God? We are not robots. We make genuine choices. But God is in charge and in control and directing every step that we take. Providence leads to our restoration. Are you aware in your hurting state today that the pain which you are feeling is there under God's divine control and he not only knows about it but he is using it for good are you aware that your standing before God is not based upon your merits at all but the king of kings will look at his risen son standing by your side and will grant you ultimate eternal resurrection and salvation. And do you know that the life which you enjoy in Christ, which brothers and sisters you know is a life of restoration, it is a life of restoration, is through the power of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll give you this story in closing. <clears throat> My aunt, uh, who lived to be almost 99 years of age, um, was a, a, a woman who was uh, debaucherous. Uh, heard stories of her going back into the 1950s where people would walk the streets of my town and they would hear her cackling in the bar and, and just a, a, a loud, obnoxious, drunk woman. A woman that my father, my father was a, a Christian at the time, he, he didn't even really want to own 
uh, my aunt, his mother's sister, as a relative, really wanted nothing to do with her. In 1959, she falls down a flight of stairs and she breaks her back. She is in a hospital bed and she gets right with God. And she cries out to God to have mercy upon her and to change her. Now, I'm not born until 1961, two years after she's saved. But as I knew her, for the entirety of my life until she died in 2014, I never knew a woman that was more godly or more sold out or more in love with Jesus Christ. How do you explain the change that happened in her? Is it psychological? Does it have something to do with sociology? Was there some sort of trauma that triggered something in her brain? No. It is the power of the risen son in her heart to change her life. That if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. I ask you today, has the power of the gospel subjectively changed you from being in a state of dead indifference or rebellion to love for Jesus Christ? It is only the power of a risen son that can do that. Has that been done in your heart? Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity that we have had to study this amazing story of restoration. And Lord, as we make our way through life, we who are saved, may we be thankful for the restoration which you have brought about through your son, Jesus Christ. And then, Father, for anyone in the room today that does not know you. I pray, God, that you would be pleased through the power of your risen Son to grant them repentance so that they might come to see his beauty and accept him as Lord and be saved eternally from their sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.